Welcome to the Be About Being Better podcast, where we help people make evidence-based, sustainable, small changes for their health that compound into huge shifts towards a better, more vibrant life. I'm your host, Abby Stacier, a health and life coach, future registered dietitian, a master's graduate from Columbia University, and a certified intuitive eating counselor. And I believe that we can't make lasting or meaningful change single-handedly, so I'm so happy that you're here so that together you can see that a diet-free, sustainable lifestyle is possible, and you can leverage that to live a better life. And remember my disclaimer, this podcast is meant to give you general information and it's not meant to substitute or replace medical advice, a diagnosis, or service treatment. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Be About Being Better podcast. Y'all, we got a big episode today. We got a heavy episode today. So I want to start with some trigger warnings. This episode will mention eating disorders. We talk about mortality. And, but this is a really important episode to, to listen to. Um, and, and, and stay with me here, even, even with these trigger warnings, because this is an episode even before I started the Be About Being Better podcast, I knew that I was going to bring these guests on. I was going to bring on Linda and Jack Mazur. So I completed my master's degree at Columbia and we had to take an eating disorder class. And as part of our curriculum, we read Linda and Jack's book called Emily, the story of a girl and her family hijacked by anorexia. And I was so inspired by their story when they came to guest speak to us. It was really emotional to hear from two parents that th their daughter passed away from, from an eating disorder. It was so impactful to me. They are just such great people. They did everything they could. The system truly failed them time and time again. Um, I, I knew from that moment I was going to have them on as guests at some point for the podcast. And y'all, today is the day. Uh, this interview is absolutely amazing. After everything that Linda and Jack have been through and what they have witnessed, they, they just have the best attitudes. They just want, they just want to help people. They want to resource you. They want to provide you with community. They want to tell their story. They want Emily's story to be amplified so that it happens to less and less people. You'll hear some pretty, pretty wild statistics in this episode and one that really surprised me that I forgot about. I've heard this before, but to be reminded of it, every 52 seconds, someone dies of an eating disorder. And I think we've, that's confusing to us. What? From an eating disorder? Yeah. From an eating disorder, people don't realize the seriousness of eating disorders sometimes. And I think people downplay it. And there's a lot of misconceptions. So in this episode, we dive into some, what are some of those misconceptions? What, what are some of the warning signs? What can you do? What are the different levels of care? And why do we struggle with access to these different levels of care to help people? Why are people dying of anorexia? So that's what this episode dives into. And please check out the show notes, buy their book. As we dive into some things, but we didn't want to give the whole story away. And their book dives into way more detail about their daughter, Emily's story and everything that they've endured. So thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing this episode. I think out of all the episodes that we've ever done, and honestly probably will do, this is probably the one of the most important episodes that we could record. And I just appreciate you all sharing this episode, getting the word out, because whether you have an eating disorder, had in recovery, you know somebody that we got to get the word out so that more people can learn from Emily, Linda, and Jack's story and that they can be connected with these, with these resources. This couple, they're doing really good work and more people need to be educated on eating disorders. So thank you so much for, for listening. Thank you for sharing. It, it really means a lot to me. Let's dive in. All right, y'all. Hello, hello. I am so excited to welcome Linda and Jack Mazur. Thank you both so much for being with me today. Well, thank you for asking us to be on, and we're honored to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this podcast interview even last 
summer when I was a teaching assistant at Columbia. So thank you both so much for agreeing to that and, and being so patient. I, I didn't even have my podcast started then, but I was like, I already know I'm going to want y'all as a guest whenever we start the podcast and, and start bringing guests on. So really, really appreciate it. Um, well, would you you both mind just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself, where you're living now, and and what's going on? Just give us a little bit of an introduction to y'all. We started out as just a regular family living in Penfield, New York. Still, still living in Penfield. Still in the same house. It's changed a lot, but we're in the same mm -hmm. house we've been in for 44 years, three years. But it's changed wow. a lot, but we're, we're still here. Mm -hmm. And Jack, mm -hmm. we'll tell them what you do. Oh, I'm a pharmacist by trade, semi-retired, mostly retired by now, just working a couple days a week. But, you know, since mm -hmm. 1976, I started as a pharmacist and it's been a, it's been a good career. Good, 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 mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm a small business owner and a Reiki master. And uh, we were blessed with two beautiful, wonderful children. The first one was Emily. And then um, almost three years later came Matthew and uh, life went along as we thought that it would. And just sadly, um, things began to happen that we would have never imagined. Just a you know, regular family, good family, lots of love. And uh, our daughter developed anorexia and it changed everything. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, I know that our audience heard you know, a little bit about your story in the introduction, um, and I definitely encourage y'all, and I'll be repeating this throughout our whole interview, we, you got to get the book, you got to get all the details. We'll be giving you little you know, highlights and snippets um, throughout this interview today, but really all of the details of what has unfolded with the Mazers is, is in their book, so definitely encourage that. But the first question that I want to ask y'all, because everything seemed great and kind of, you know, normal family, normal upbringing. What do you think were some of the driving factors that led into Emily's eating disorder? Well, if you want to go all the way back when, when she was really little, she had trouble sleeping. Okay. And she had some separation mm -hmm. anxiety when she was away from me. Yeah. I worked at home, so that was understandable. And we talked to the pediatrician about it. And, you know, your first time parents and you're out, you know, concerned about everything. Oh, she's fine. You work at home. She's just attached to you. But that was, I mean, a lot of kids go through that. But, you know, she got into school and she turned into. She flourished in middle yes. school and in high school. And she actually, really it flourished. started in elementary school, though, really, with her, her and her friend Kelly. Yeah. Just really, she loved school. She loved achieving. Um, but I think that anxiety that she had early on, I think it was always in there. And I think she mm -hmm. just masked it. Okay. It wasn't obvious at all. Just that, you know, she was happy. She was social. Uh, she was bright. I, we didn't really worry about Emily. She was, she was great. No, I always, I always tell people that when Emily was 14, I was, you know, and uh, I said, well, we don't have to worry about Emily. She's, she's got it all together. She's like a little Linda and uh, she was wise and, beyond her years and um she had a great sense of humor like her humor. dad you know we <laughs> we um when we do talks now we, we show a video of emily as a baby and growing up and, and into high school high school college and, and beyond and she was always smiling always laughing always happy you know and um it just that's who she was she was somebody that uh her friends would come to to uh ask for advice or tell their troubles to, and she was she was a great listener and a great uh, ad advisor to them. So, you know, she she was she wasn't diagnosed until she was twenty five with with anorexia. Mm. So she was diagnosed late. Was it going on before that? You know, during high school and everything. Nothing that we saw. You know, nothing. Mm -hmm. was nothing. No, Different. well, she developed a GI issue yeah. in high school, and yeah, that was because I, I know she was having some reflux, but then she was going to have a surgery. But yeah, do you mind just kind of explaining that and how you think the GI issues related to her eating disorder? When she was in high school, she played soccer, and then she decided that she would run track in between, you know, to kind of stay, stay in, shape. in shape. 
she was always a healthy, normal weight. She was strong, athletic, uh, musical, a lot of other things too. Uh, but when she started to do the track, she came to me and said, you know, Ma, I, I get this burning feeling in my throat and food starts mm. to come up sometimes. Just and little bits. bits. Just, little, just little bits of food. Yeah. So um, we took her to the pediatrician and then he recommended that we go see a gastroenterologist, what we did, as we did. And he told us that it was not at all unusual for people who run to develop GERD. So he gave her medication, which she took, which helped a little bit. But she, from that point on, she had to think about eating, okay? If she drank too much water, uh, things would come back up again. Ice cream came back up almost immediately. Uh, after dinner, if we went for a walk, um, sometimes she would just have a, a mouthful of food that would come up that she would just have to spit out. So we were... I mean, we knew about eating disorders. We weren't experts on eating disorders, but we knew the things to look for. But if she ate smaller, more frequent meals, she did better. Mm-hmm. And the medicine helped the burning. And But she did have a little cup by her, her bedroom sometimes that when she mm-hmm. was doing her homework, if something came up, she yeah, just... She wasn't hiding anything. She wasn't anything. hiding and, anything. You know, it and it was just a little yeah. cup. And sometimes... There, and we were... I thought we were pretty astute. So I don't really think that anything was going on then, but I think it was the beginning because she had to think about food. It wasn't normal uh, that she could just eat like everybody else and then, you know, not have ramifications from it. Well, then there was the anxiety of that too, going to college and stuff and eating with other people and, you know, worrying about that, that reflux. Am I going to have a reaction? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Reflux. Do I have to have a cup every time I, you know, go to eat or, you know, dinner. So that, you know, that may have changed the amount of food that she ate at that point. And again, you can never tell by somebody's weight what's going on, but she was still, you know, a normal, healthy looking, healthy weight person. So. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other, um, so I know weight is a huge thing that people, even in larger bodies, they could have anorexia Mm -hmm. and people wouldn't know. Um, as, you now, I mean, I know in the beginning you weren't experts on eating disorders, but I really see both of you now as, as really experts and advocates for eating disorders now. What um, what are some of the other misconceptions that come to mind for eating disorders? That they're a choice. Uh, that, that's a huge misconception. Yeah, that, that is a huge one. Yeah. That, that men don't get eating disorders because they certainly do. Maybe not quite as frequently and sometimes for different reasons, but it's just not unusual for people to develop an eating disorder when they have depression, when they have an illness, uh, something where they lose weight and there's just a certain amount of the population that are more predisposed because of their personality traits, as you know, people who are more perfectionistic, kind of driven. Uh, and that describes a lot of athletes too, right? So so 100%. I guess people don't realize that that there's no eating disorders don't discriminate. They they could happen to anybody in any social class, any sexual orientation, social economic class. And it's a big it's a big problem in in the military. Um, you know, with mm, men, I didn't know that. yeah, men and women in the military, it's becoming a, a bigger problem. And you think, you know, how many everybody that goes in the military has to get into shape. They have to you know be muscular and 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 get into shape. And I think then there's a that tipping point where it goes over the edge, where it becomes um, not just getting into shape and staying in shape, but it becomes uh, obsessive and it can tip into an eating disorder. And it happens very, very frequently and more frequently now than ever before. There was always the thought that, you know, parents were to blame too, you know, and that's, that's mm. been, that's been de- demythed. And um, they're they're finding that there's a lot of genetics involved. They're doing a lot of studies on mm. genetics. You know, um, it's the biopsychosocial, but there's now genetics that uh, come into play. So, yeah, definitely. And you two did absolutely everything that you could for Emily and to try and help her on her journey. And you were met with so much resistance. It's like every time, you know, took a step forward, like five inches back. The, the healthcare system was not helping y'all out. 
Um, could you speak to, not to give too much away from the book, but could you speak to some of the pivotal moments in, in Emily's journey um, and, and how you dealt with that? I, I will go on to say that Emily did have surgery for her reflux when she was in college mm. and it got much better. And oh, good. it was something we pushed for to her to see um, a thoracic surgeon. And the gastroenterologist kept saying, oh, she'll be, but we were worried about her esophagus. And um, yeah, yeah. yeah, just so it was something that she had done and she felt much better. So at that point, I think we said, I'm sorry, it was her body. She was, she was 21 or 22, 22. years old. At, so she made the decision. We just wanted her to know the options that were out there. And she was very glad she did when afterwards she said it just felt so good to eat like a normal person again. Uh, but I mean, then things changed. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, as a parent and your child is sick, you take them to a doctor and you think the doctor will know what to do to help your child, whatever the illness is. Right. I mean, you do that from yeah. the time they're a baby right through. So um, it was just so eye-opening to us. We we're so naive that we didn't realize that the doctors or, or most you know, clinicians don't get any training in medical school or nursing school or anything about eating disorders. Um, no. I think there's only 10% of the schools in the country that offer any classes at all in it and it's just it's minimal you know it's just a, a yeah. couple hours or something so so we you know the system was there it was the only system we had to to use and just never understood how as time went on as her symptoms got worse and her well that we they never understood how to get to the root of the problem you know they mm -hmm. kept just treating and, yeah. and stabilizing her but never ever well, trying let, to get just, to the root of the problem the mental you know the mental it turned into yeah. a full-fledged eating disorder emily was in an accelerated pharmacy program and mm -hmm. she was in a long distance relationship at that time too and i think the stress of that i think that was a tipping point for her yeah. so just before she graduated from uh, pharmacy school, that accelerated program is when we noticed that she had lost weight. So she wasn't really living what it was before. She was, you know, at school, but she came home she, and she was a little bit thinner. But then by that Christmas, she had lost a lot of weight and we were concerned. Mm. And her, yeah. um, her boyfriend, who, her fiance at the time was very concerned too. Mm -hmm. And so eventually after a few years, she reached out for help herself. But prior to that, she was she was seeing her PCP, who was right. who was very very supportive. You know, not schooled in eating disorders, but very supportive, and and uh, she was seeing a, a therapist too. But yeah. um, when she was twenty nine, she realized that you know this was getting worse. It was taking over her life, and she she wasn't able to keep working. And she knew that this was going to get worse. So she researched a lot of uh, treatment centers throughout the United States and went away for treatment, told everybody she was sick. She had anorexia, but she was going to go away and get better. Mm -hmm. And after being at the treatment center for five days, after gaining less than two pounds, the insurance company said she wasn't sick enough to stay for treatment. That tipping point was... She was angry. She, she ended was, up being there for 10 days because the, the treatment center tried to tried to fight to keep her there. Right. You know, tried to keep but, and, right. Because just because you gain a couple pounds doesn't mean that. Right. But basically everything they told fixed, her, but to the insurance company, right. yeah. they, they told her she wasn't sick enough. So can you imagine hmm. you're a, a medical professional yourself? She's a doctor of pharmacy. And she told everyone, her friends and her colleagues, I'm taking a leave of absence. I have anorexia nervosa and I have to do this. Right. I have to take care of myself. So yeah. they tell her she's not sick enough. The insurance company doesn't cover. There was outpatient here at that time. That was all that was here. They wouldn't cover that either. So she was riddled with shame, anxiety, mm. embarrassment. And she threw herself right back into work and literally worked herself to the bone. And we were powerless anything we offered to try to get her to do this, she just went into 
she was really depressed and and, and well, mortified a- that that this had happened. She threw herself back into work. That was a very pivotal moment, and she worked for six months until she couldn't work anymore. And you know, after that, it was very um, up and down. She did get well enough to go back to work here and there because she was wonderful about following up with her therapist and her physician. Yeah, I think about adults like Emily, and there's there's so many. You know, that's why we call it the the nonprofit, the Emily Connection, because you're an Emily, you're an Emily Connection. Everybody we've met, you know, is an Emily Connection, and and these adults are have gone through high school and graduated and college and graduated and had a job and and uh, been successful and maybe got married, had a family, and then this disease just takes all that away. And the the, the shame of that is, you know, while all your your friends are moving on through their life you just disconnect from them. And that's what she did. And it's, some of the friends disconnected from her too. So it's just- um, Well, and she never got the appropriate level of care no. until until it was it was too, too late. late. And that's so hard to, to declare, hi, this is what I have to be really honest and transparent with the people in your life. I need to take a step away to take care of myself. I think it's so hard for people to Number one, say, hi, I have anorexia nervosa, to say I have this diagnosis and to be aware of that and then to say I need help. It's so hard for people to accept help and to take the action steps to, to do that. So it's like, wow, like she really was taking ownership and, and we the were system so- just spat her back out. It's uh, I know, and yeah. we were so proud of her for doing that. And, yeah. and what happened after that, um, you know, we after to- that initial time when she went away, the ups and downs are absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, you, have, you have to read the book because, you know, we we said, you know, I remember one day standing in the hospital and saying, looking at Linda, and I said, people wouldn't believe this. This is crazy. You we, know, we tried if, so if, hard. If this so. was a movie, people wouldn't believe it. But Emily wanted her story told. That's why we wrote the book. It was because she told a friend of hers that she wanted her story told. So she, that might help somebody else. It might help change the system. And so no one would suffer like she did. So that was the impetus to write the book. It took us three and a half years to get it out, to write it and get it out there. Um, There was a lot of tears, but there was a lot of laughs too. And the good memories. Good memories and looking at the pictures. And the book has some of Emily's writings in it. You know, we'd hope hope that she would recover and write a book herself, but she's got some writings in the book herself. Oh, she was an amazing. She was. She was good at everything. But you know, we look back, and there's always things that you look back at and say, "I wish I'd have done something different." And I said, "There's, there's a million things I would do just the same, and dozens different. I don't know if it would have had a different outcome." But we learned so much along the way, um, and have learned so much since from people like Emily, who are wonderful people. And the thing is, is that these are all. Everybody who I've met, they that we've met, they're wonderful, compassionate, bright, driven people. And the disease just robs them of their sense of self. And it's so yeah. hard for people to understand when things happen to the brain. There's so much more stigma when somebody has a mental illness. And what's interesting to me is there's a lot of people who've read the book who've struggled with other types of mental illness who said, how much the book has helped them. And there's been a lot of people who said that the book was pivotal for them continuing to work on their recovery. So it's it's doing more than we ever imagined it would do. And it's very yeah. hard for us to have the story out there too, because there's people right. who are not going to understand. There's yeah. people who judge it, who will judge it. And judge us. And judge us. But it's okay. I mean, it's for the greater good, you know, if it can save one person or shift one person's thinking so that they have the drive to get better. And the thing that I I would say that we've learned along the way is that, so we started a nonprofit called the Emily Connection. And that was the last thing we did. The the first thing we did was we put all our energy into the book. Um, the second thing we did, we, we started a podcast called One Shitter, Picking Up the Pieces, and it's about eating disorders and all mental all health mental issues yeah. because they're so co-occurring so many times. And then we started the Emily Connection just last year mm-hmm. to provide the support we wish was here for Emily and we wish was here for us. It's for but- adults 
suffering and the, and then the families or the caregivers of the adults that are suffering because you know one of the saddest things i've heard in some of our groups is that and this is from both the the adults that are suffering and their parents have said you know i wish i had cancer if i had cancer people would understand you know yeah. be empathetic yeah. and yeah. you know i get the treatment that i was supposed to get and one i'm wondering this is if i had a uh a relapse, people would understand if the cancer kind of come back. Yeah. And then there's another young man that said, well, and that it wasn't your fault. Right. Right. So exactly. many people it's blame right. the patient for the eating disorder, but it's not a choice. Yeah. And I, I love that, you know, the title of the book has hijacked in it because it's, yeah. you have no control and you truly are hijacked yeah. and people don't understand that. Yeah. And what is the statistic about women from 15 oh, to ages 15 to 24? It's the highest rate of any illness. Three right? times higher than any other cause of illness for women, women 15, 15 to 24. 24. And people don't take wow. it seriously. So, you know, you wow. present with an eating disorder and you don't get treatment right away. You came in with a tumor. Uh, they pay pretty close attention to you no matter what insurance you had, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And people who lose the ability to work end up on Medicaid. And, and then that's another whole nightmare. And I know that things are a little bit better with, than they were when things began with Emily, but we still have a long, long way to go. And I'm so proud of you, Abby, for sharing a little bit about your journey and for specializing in eating disorders. Yeah. I think that, that professionals in the field who are open about their own journey are so powerful. I so believe in that. And I so believe in the power of peer support and social connection, because mm -hmm. if anybody is going to get well, it's not going to be somebody who's isolated uh, alone in their room for weeks and months and years at a time. It's going to be people who yeah. are have other people who believe in them and therapists mm -hmm. that believe in them and a dietitian that believes in them. And I, I think that takes a village. And I've heard that mm -hmm. Only 10% of people with substance use issues get eating disorder treatment. And I've heard it's it's pretty close to the same statistic. I think I've heard from 10 to 20% of people with eating disorders only get formal treatment, right? So we have to do better. We have to do better as a yeah, community, do. as a society, um, and, and for our medical professionals just to be better trained so that they can handle. And just like anything, Jack always says, you know, that sooner that you are diagnosed, the better the chance that you're going to get through this and be okay. And recovery is possible. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're doing yes. everything we're doing because we don't want anybody else to go through what Emily went through mm -hmm. or any family yeah. either. To you know, the statistic that I, that I tell when we're speaking at a, a school or, or even with, you know, friends and families that, you know, every 52 minutes, somebody's dying as a direct result of an mm -hmm. eating disorder. So that's wow. just, uh, you know, it's, it's a statistic. I always have a hard time with that word. But that's a, that's a person out there. That's a life out there. Mm -hmm. That's another family that's, yeah. that's suffering the loss of, of a loved one. So um, we just, we have to do so much better. And, and we have to get the insurance companies on board. You know, they're the, they're the driving force yeah. of healthcare in this country. And we've got to get them on board for better treatment uh, for eating Yeah. Hundred percent. Do y'all mind just going through and explaining the different types of eating disorder treatment and maybe how to get better access to those or any changes you would like to see with insurance or the healthcare system to have better access to those? So you know, there's hospitalization. That's you know, if somebody yeah. is, needs to be stabilized. That's where they go, mm -hmm. and there's coverage for that. That Emily's insurance paid for it over and over and over again. That revolving door of the emergency department and some hospital admissions that was that was covered after that there's residential treatment that's the, the next step down mm -hmm. residential and there are many 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 throughout the country of residential treatment centers wonderful people that are there to help uh, the patients but the insurance company gives limited coverage to to those if any if any and yeah. um, it costs up to anywhere from thirty to $50,000 a month for residential yeah. treatment, which Wild. is pretty much out of the realm of any normal family or any family or right. any person being able to, to 
afford that. So, but then there's uh, partial hospitalization where they they go to a a facility. We have a place in town here called the Healing Connection that is partial hospital where they go there and they have meals and support throughout the day. Then they go back home to their their families. And then there's intensive outpatient, which I always thought was should be about. I know it's confusing because it says intensive outpatient. You know, it should be, but but that's when they're they're more stabilized and and they're more normalized with their eating and don't need that that daily support for Mm -hmm. for treatment. So a lot of that is covered. uh, Limited if you have the right insurance. If you have the right insurance, you know the the eating disorders were were added to the Mental Health Parity Act from 2008, which didn't have eating disorders in it, but the Anna Weston Act in 2016, right before Obama left office in 2016, was added to the Mental Health Parity Act to include eating disorders that had to be treated just like any other mental illness. So everybody thought that's great, but it hasn't really made that much of a difference because uh, the insurance companies, again, are, aren't, yeah. aren't, nobody oversees them or, or takes them to task saying, you know, so. Most insurance companies do not pay for residential care. Right. Uh, and maybe not everybody needs residential care to begin with, okay? But they need to be properly assessed and they need therapy and they need a dietitian. Dietitians aren't even mandatory for people eating disorders. Why don't you speak to that? This is so wild to me. Yeah, it's, it is so wild. Um, and one thing that we're taught, I'm in my you know, dietetic internship right now. And one thing they're really harping in us is motivational interviewing and working with the patient or the client to develop goals. And when I had my eating, dis- my inpatient eating disorder uh, rotation recently, I there's none of that. And when you're impatient, like it's just, you need to eat food or like you will pass away. Like we are just at such a critical point and we need to be telling you what to do. So it's, it's a hard balance when, when they're that at that point. And I think possibly in more of an outpatient setting, there is an opportunity to even build more rapport with that patient and have and actually do more counseling, make it more collaborative and not focus so much on getting your body physically back to a baseline and like we just need to have you eat food, but also how do we help you change like your your mind and your relationship with food? heal that food anxiety, heal our things that are going on, help to make peace with food and to actually enjoy the experience of eating again um, so that there is less of a likelihood to, to relapse. So that's why I became an intuitive eating counselor. And I know that when you're possibly in an inpatient setting or you are very much in the thick of anorexia nervosa, you are so out of touch with your hunger cues. You're not able to trust that. But eventually when you start to recover, you do get your hunger cues back. And I think that's when intuitive eating and really working with the client and the patient on, you know, how can we build these, you know, goals together? Let's make your treatment collaborative. I'm not telling you what to do, but we're working together through this. I, I just think that there's such an opportunity, opportunity for that. And a lot of people are missing it because they're just focusing on how physically can we get you back to a baseline? How can we just get you to eat more calories and and gain weight? And obviously the the patients are very resistant to that. They have such a fear of that because they're also not treating the mind and they're not empathizing with the patient. So I think that there's a lot of relapses because they're not looking at the patient from that holistic view and helping them to heal that relationship with food, get to the root of it. Right. Because People develop an eating disorder because they can't regulate their emotions, right? And food becomes mm-hmm. the perfect coping mechanism, either for binge yes. eating disorder, which is the most common eating disorder, you know, all the way right through to anorexia. There's so many different types of eating disorders. They all manifest in different ways. One size does not fit all. And one size treatment does not fit all right. either. And people don't realize what an essential part of the team your dietitian is because I've heard so many people say that the dietitian that they worked with was the reason that they got through it, you know, wow. because it's, it is, it's motivational yeah. interviewing. It's, it's setting goals. It's being realistic. Well, okay. That didn't work. 
but let's just say what part of that might've worked a little bit that we can focus on more and, you know, just being open like that because people need to be heard and understood and they need the compassion. Meetings with us might not be covered by insurance. Even like we're at the hospitals, but sometimes we're not with a practice or therapists don't have somebody that they can refer to. So sometimes it's very, unless you have diabetes or like renal disease or renal failure, like those are the two things that for sure insurance will cover a dietitian visit with, but everything else is such a gamble. Well, you know, when I've been looking up a lot of the insurance companies and their hierarchy, and there's always a medical director, you know, in charge of whatever the insurance is. And then they have cardiology specialists and endocrinologist specialists and different specialists for different disease states. But none of them have anybody on there who's a specialist for an eating disorder. So the people making these decisions at a 1-800 number have no education or specialization in, in eating disorders. And as a pharmacist, um, medication is important, but we're a pill for every ill society and yes. just give me something. And and, you know, it works for, for hypertension and, and thyroid disease and stuff. But there, again, still, there's other changes that have to be made if you have hypertension with diet and exercise and other things. It's just throwing a pill down your throat and a glass of water doesn't fix you immediately. So we're sitting in on a, a psychology and a psychiatry class in a couple of weeks, and we've done that mm-hmm. every year, usually virtually since COVID. But I always ask them, you know, somebody in this age of specialization, somebody specialize in, in eating disorders because it's it's so much needed. It's, it, it's exploding. It, you know, it was there before COVID. It was exploding before COVID. And, you know, COVID just exacerbated, exacerbated it, it even more. And um, so I understand it's hard to deal with these patients, but you can't just fix them. There's no drug out there that's been proven to cure eating disorders. You know, they, they tried the SSRIs and they, they don't work. So, um, it's just, you know, somebody said, well, how long does it take to recover from an eating disorder? Some people put a time frame on it, three to five years, seven years, but there is for, again, it's so individual. And some people may be living in, you know, recovery for the, you know, for the rest of their life. Some people may be fully recovered. It doesn't, matter the label doesn't matter as long as you can live a rich full life and and be healthy and you know be healthy enough to enjoy life and be productive and i hate labels i really hate labels so you just work so you can live your best life be as healthy as you can to be there to be present and to just make the most of every day there's a woman from london who contacted us after she read the book and she contacted us just let us know that we weren't at fault, you know, there was nothing we could have done. And, but she said, you know, and she's, she's in her fifties and she's in her own recovery now. Um, but she says that people think that recovery is running through fields and eating ice cream and it's not a straight line and everybody doesn't become you know, a doctor or a lawyer, but she's in her own recovery working with her dog in her apartment with a circle of friends that and she's very proud that she has a normal bmi (laughs) (laughs) and she should be and she should be yeah and i think what both of you have just spoken to is the reinforcement of the the importance of community we can't make lasting or meaningful change single-handedly you need that support system to get you through to get to recovery and then be able to sustain that and there's a lot of virtual groups now which are great because some people who would never go to an in-person group will sign up to go to a virtual group. Um, but the in-person groups uh, are wonderful too. And, and in the in-person groups, what, what speaks to my heart is when I see the parents connecting with each other and then the adults with eating disorders just connecting with each other. It's that sense of community. It's like that sense of being able to just share whatever your frustration is and not feel judged. And it's, you know, you talk about treating people mentally, physically, emotionally, and there needs to be a spiritual component too, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I think yes. that's what happens just in, in these meetings. I mean, and it doesn't have to be any set way for some people. Yoga is very good, but sometimes just that connection itself can be spiritual and, and just the boost you need and other people that you can reach out to if you're having a bad day. And you know, we're human by design. 
we don't do everything perfectly all the time. It's just that self-compassion is so important too. You know, we were, we started out with these groups and doing one group for the the adults and one group for the family a month because both of us are still working and there's a lot of other things on our plate. Mm -hmm. But now we've been asked by the, the adult group, they'd like to do it weekly and we just can't do it weekly. Oh, we're going yeah, to, we're going to try lot. to do it twice a month now. So, so that gives me that gratification that, you know, they're, they're small groups. It's hard to get people to come out, but the, oh, the, but the people, the people that we have are just time. so grateful and, and just so willing to help mm -hmm. each other. So, um, that's amazing. That's amazing. So you host those virtual groups. No, well, we, we do in-person groups. I, yeah, these are in-person. We're okay. doing a limited series of virtual ones. I just finished one with Betsy Brenner, who has also written a wonderful book called um, The Longest Match, Rallying to Defeat an Eating Disorder in Midlife. And she's part of our board too. So she's wonderful. And her husband helped us uh, form our nonprofit. So that was wonderful too. Uh, and all these Emily connections that we never imagined have come. Yeah. They live in Rhode Island. So, but anyway, we started a five week limited series virtual group that just ended. And we will be doing that again. And we're going to, Jack and I are going to do the same thing for a family member support and just do a limited series, um, you know, for five weeks. And that gives people some flexibility um, if they want to just focus for a while. Because a lot of times people attend. A lot of different groups they need a lot of different support we can focus on certain things and we will be doing each of these a, a few times a year the virtual groups um and the in-person groups are the ones that are here that we do every month uh, so and we, and we want to do outings too you know to have activities mm -hmm. outside the groups so that it's you know um gives them something to look forward to yeah. yeah so not everything has to always be about eating disorders it can just be about being people and having fun too. So being together. we're going to yeah. the zoo, we're doing a painting thing. We've got other things other lined things up. So. And yeah. we're just, and we're, we don't talk clinically in these groups. We're just peer support. And it's just mm -hmm. each of, each of the person that give each other peer support. So, um, but we're going to have speakers and things sometimes yeah. too, for that clinical support. That's so important. So too. We launched the Emily connection last July and it's been amazing. The amount of support we've gotten from family, friends and, and, and again, people we don't know. Um, so it's it's given us the opportunity to do what we're doing and we'd like to get bigger. And so. Yeah, absolutely. How, what's the best way for listeners to get involved in and support you? Because we have you know, listeners that do have eating disorders or are now in recovery. We also have listeners that have never, have never had that, but they definitely will want to support your cause and, and support your nonprofit. We are so fortunate that we have a blog now too. And there's some great things in it, but yeah. relatively new, but we encourage the people in our support groups um, to contribute to the blog. And we have one young man who's a journalist who has some incredible, oh, fabulous, uh, fabulous uh, posts about recovery and, um, and, and his walk. And he's great. So the name of um, the website is the emilyconnection.com and it's spelled the T H E Emily E M I L E E connection.com. The blogs are there and all the information about the book, our book the yeah, podcast, everything's on that, on that website. And you know, what the book has helped us realize is that I think everybody thinks that this is a problem just here in the States, but the world is small because of social media and we have people that have reached out to us from London and Australia, New Zealand, and, New Zealand, and it's woman, a, a woman same from, frustrations that yeah. they're going through all different places. And it is a woman from Slovakia that contacted yeah. Linda. So I, in addition oh, yeah. to still working part time and doing this, I have a lot of email uh, time that I, I spend with people and phone calls and that all started you know, not long after Emily passed, people started reaching out to me. And I, that kind of surprised me because, you know, our scenario was the worst scenario. But I think what happens is that people realize there's, there really isn't anything that they couldn't tell us that we wouldn't have empathy for and compassion for and understand. Yeah. And we tried to learn everything we could along the way with Emily. And we've learned even more since. And it's so wonderful just to be able to share it and to do it from the heart. It keeps us going. Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you both so much for for sharing your story, having this courage, and to have to repeat your story so many times. I mean, seriously, God bless you both, and and thank you so much because you really are creating waves and making a lot of change and wow. planting a lot of seeds, which is important. Look who's talking. <laughs> yeah, right back at you. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, I love y'all so much. Thank you. As we close out, um, any other, because you've learned so much along the way, anything, you know, else, any other, like little nuggets of wisdom or pieces of advice that you would have to people that are struggling with eating disorders that may be a listener right now, or maybe parents that are, that are struggling with a child that, that is suffering from an eating disorder. I think language is very important and having the right kind of supports. And I think mm -hmm. that people who are struggling with an eating disorder, there are often people who are very compassionate and caring with other people, but not so much when themselves and they're sensitive, they're easily hurt. So I think it's very important for them to tell people what they need. And maybe when something didn't set right, something somebody said, a friend, a family member, mm -hmm. I think that's a, that's a really important thing. And I, I think it's certainly the peer support for family members too, because not one size fits all. And it's great to hear different scenarios, different stories and different things that work for other people, uh, for adults and for their loved ones, for sure. I just recently spoke at a high school and then Linda and I spoke at a, at a college just the other day. And, and I, and I, the high school was with the faculty, nurses, coaches, teachers and stuff. And I always tell people that, you know, when you see someone who's been happy, engaging with activities socially and everything, then something all of a sudden, they're not the same person. I remember Emily in high school, she had a friend who was on the soccer team and stuff. And she noticed she wasn't happy and she was she had her head down on the desk. And she lost she, a lot of she weight. She lost a lot of weight. She wasn't eating lunch. And, and she went to the, the guidance counselor there and uh, with her concerns about this other person. And, you know, she got help and she is uh, recovered and now a doctor here in Rochester. So I, I just wow. tell these people, don't be afraid to, to go up to someone and say, hey, is everything okay? You know, is there anything you want to tell me or talk about? Um, because... Well, and everybody knows someone. With everybody, every place we've gone through all our advocacy, all the talks we've done in, in Rochester, no. Albany, Washington, everybody knows somebody, you know, that, that, that class at the, at the high school, or the talk at the high school with the, the teachers and coaches and stuff, you know, we asked, you know, people to raise their hand if they knew somebody with an eating disorder and there was 60 people in the room and there was at least 50 hands that went up. You know, it was just everybody knows somebody. And um, and for the people that, that have eating disorders out there or any mental illness, please reach out to someone. Please, you're not alone. You're not alone. And through schools, counselors, uh, the lunch ladies, um, teachers, uh, every they're all, everybody, schools are so busy right now and people are so tagged, but just pay attention to those food habits and things you see in your students because they spend yeah. more time during school year at school than they yeah. do at home. By the time they get home, if, you know, if they go to school at seven in the morning and then they go to school and then they've got activities afterwards and then they get home at seven at night or eight at night, you know, parents, have, bed, parents yeah. haven't seen them all day, you know, dinner time's over. And so, yeah, uh, the, this connection in the schools. And like I said, at the college, I said, Trauma is very subjective, you know, because a lot of people say it's brought on by trauma too. But the trauma of being away from home for the first time, and and leaving your friends behind, and not being home where you know mom is making you dinner every day and stuff, and and so now you're out on your own and you've got to learn to eat on your own. And so if you have a problem with eating, you know, it gets even worse when you're out by yourself, and so. Any, yeah. any transition in any life. Trans yeah, it's can, a transition. Any transition yeah. in life right. can can be a factor. So yeah. nothing to be ashamed of. And if there's any inkling that something might be wrong, you don't want to live with regrets. So just follow it through and do everything you can and get all the support you can. And get a great dietitian. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, for sure, for sure. Because you need someone that for those long-term follow-ups yeah, and to help you with the eating behaviors as well. Oh, well, thank you both so much. I am just sending you so much love and I'm so grateful that you've come on the Be About Being Better podcast to share your story. And we're going to link everything up in the show notes. So y'all head to the show notes. We're going to have the Emily Connection website there. We're going to link up the blog, their podcast, the book for sure. And then, you know, a couple other things too. So, um, and if anyone wanted to get in touch with you both, what is the best way to do that? If they have, you know, testimony or story or another question for you both, they can do it through the website. Um, or they can contact us at Linda, L I N D A dot John dot major is M A Z U R at gmail.com or through the website, it's info at the emilyconnection.com. And again, Emily is spelled E-M-I-L-E-E. Amazing. Thank you. And we'll have that linked up in the show notes too. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Abby. I'll talk Thank to you soon. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Hey, y'all. Thanks again for listening to the Be About Being Better podcast. I so appreciate you. If this episode made you laugh, smile, think about yourself or your life differently, in any way making your life better, I empower you to share this show with three people who, just like you, need to hear this message and have this type of transformation in their lives. I personally read all the reviews of the show and see the Instagram story shares and honestly gives me so much joy to see that our mission is making people's lives better and the reviews really do help in increasing our impact so thank you so much for taking the time to do that if you need personalized support with anything discussed in today's episode or need help creating a sustainable diet-free lifestyle take my quiz it's linked below in the show notes and that quiz will help you see which one of our coaching programs is right for you thank you so much again for listening and here's to being about being better